listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. We gon' make it all the way. We don't care what they all will say. Don't listen to the hate, no. Listen to my fate, yo. Destined to be great, yo. And we gon' make it all the way. We don't care what they all will say. Don't listen to the hate, no. Listen to my fate, yo. Yeah, we like to go hard. What up, what up, what up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in. You are not going to regret it. Today, we have myself, Derek Williams, Justin Short, and Steve Vandegraaff of The Lifestyle Practice on the podcast. Yes, we have decided to do a podcast. We know it's an already somewhat crowded podcast space, but if our goal is truly what we say it is, and that is to help as many dentists as we can to achieve more successful practices and to be able to live life on their own terms, we really felt like a podcast was the most effective medium aside from our coaching at this time to do that. Yes. And I would take that even a step further, Derek. I'm not sure about you guys, but I would honestly say my goal is to not help necessarily as many dentists as we can or I can, but I want to help the ones who want help and guidance taking their practice in life to the next level. You know, there are a lot of dentists that are happy and content doing average or mediocre, as I would define it, which, God bless them, is awesome for them if they're happy. But I think most of our followers, clients, what have you, are generally ones who are not easily made content, which is cool. You know, I think each one of us has a little bit of that in us. Totally. Right. So in the first three episodes, as we get this thing going, we felt it was important to kind of introduce ourselves, share a little bit about our own stories. So listeners have some context to who we are, what we do, and kind of where we've come from. After that, we'll go on to other podcasts and talk about things you guys probably really care about. But even before that, I think it'd be good to tell you guys a little bit about what this podcast is going to look like going forward, some of the ground rules or lack of, to put it in a better way, maybe. First off, we're going to try and keep episodes around 30 minutes, give or take. We'll see how that goes. We're not making any promises. (laughs) Our goal is not to be like every other podcast because there's a lot, you know, some Sometimes you hear the same interviews of the same doctors that you've probably heard in the past, but that's not going to be our MO. We're going to bring some guests on from time to time, but we're going to try to do things a little differently. And also, I was thinking since Derek and Steve are both Mormons, I think we should have a pretty good shot at getting Mitt Romney on the show, which may be, in fact, a first in the dental podcast realm, I think, maybe. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got Mitty on speed dial. And I think, Stave, didn't you date one of his relatives? Oh, right, right. Is that yeah. true? We're, we're pretty tight, the whole family. Well, so we're going to have these podcasts. We're going to put them on our new Facebook group. It's called the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. And after we do these each week, you can feel free to jump on and ask any questions. We'll probably have little discussions about the things that we talk about each week. We're going to be 
really raw and open with you guys. We're not going to be afraid to discuss struggles that we've had in the past or even things we're still working on. Cover real topics that are going to help you to become more successful. And we're not promising to be the most, quote, PC of podcasts out there. We're not promising to always tell you what you want to hear. But I think we all fully believe that if you continue listening over time, you will become a better leader, stronger person, a more successful business owner, and basically, really, all of your wildest dreams will come true if you listen to this podcast a lot. And we know that over time, some will love it, and some are going to hate it, and maybe some of you already hate it. That's fine. That's just life. you know. But I think, I'd like to think one of our goals is the, what I like to term, depussification of the dental world, getting to a point where you can live life on your own terms is not for the faint of heart. It takes work. It takes grit. It takes not getting your feelings hurt at every turn. And I think realizing that life owes you nothing. It's not going to hand you a darn thing. Totally. So now that we've got some of the ground rules and we kind of know where things are going today, since Justin is the oldest out of the three of us by a long shot, might I add, (laughs) we're going to start with learning a little bit more of his background for those of you who aren't familiar with him or his story. So Derek and I have come up with a few questions. We're going to ask him or grill him and we'll see how he does. We'll try to move along fairly quickly, but to get things warmed up, let's just give you a couple softballs, Justin. What's your favorite movie? Wow, you guys are coming out strong. It's impressive. So I, I'm going to name four movies since I know we're trying to move quick. I'm going to name Stand By Me, Shawshank Redemption, Varsity Blues, and Dazed and Confused. Yeah, you turned that softball into some Thank you. Some good yeah, stuff there. Yeah, I went there. for the cycle. <laughs> All right, next question. What time did you get up this morning? 4.45 a.m. Boom. Wow, that's awesome. This is a guy without a, a full-time job right now either. What's your favorite music group? Dave Matthews Band, which... Kind of dates me, I think. Yeah, I think I I think I heard of them in junior this high. This is actually, real quick, this is a true story. So I'm working on a patient right when I was out of school. So it's like 2006, maybe. I think she was turning like 16 or 17 or 18. And I was trying to be hip, trying to be with it. And I said, do kids your age still listen to Dave Matthews Band? Because they were one of my favorites in high school. And she said, who? That was pretty cool. And that was 15 years right. ago. So anyways, (laughs) we're definitely starting off strong. Enough of the easy ones. Let's get into dentistry. Let's start in the very beginning. Justin, how did boards go for you? (laughs) Ah, you son of a gun. I see what's going on here, but that's all right. You guys are in the next two episodes. So boards did not go well for old Dr. Short the first time. And I honestly believe I may have the fastest time of flunking boards in the history of dentistry. So leading up to boards, I was probably overconfident. Everyone was freaking out, stressing out, and I was pretty chill. I was definitely stronger clinically than didactically in dental school. So I went into clinical boards thinking, what's the big deal? We do this every day. And it was a great lesson in my life, unfortunately. So my first station, first day of boards was operative, class twos. I brought my patient back who I'd found a couple months prior with a perfect board lesion, set her down. I went to grab the instructor. He comes over, he checks her, he flosses her, and he gets this weird look on his face. And then he gets up, doesn't say anything to me, and he goes and grabs the other instructor. I had no idea what was going on at this point, but I knew it wasn't good. So long story short, I guess her teeth had shifted like a quarter of a micron, 
if people still use that word and there wasn't good interproximal contact or enough for it to be good enough for boards. So they said I couldn't use her. I did not have a backup patient. So I was just going into it stupid. So I'm scrambling, trying to find another patient. My buddy said, hey, my brother-in-law's in the waiting room. He has to K all over, get him, find a class two. So I did. And when I went to check him in, and this is like in 10, 15 minutes after like the buzzer goes off to start boards. Instructor comes over, checks him, and the adjacent tooth to which I was going to try to restore against was too bombed out and they wouldn't allow it. So there I was, 20 minutes into boards with two strikes. I was out walking home. I had to call and tell my new wife, my new soon-to-be boss, that I had flunked boards. And a month later, I'm driving to Minnesota from St. Louis to take it again. This time with a patient in my car and scared to death. It was awkward, but thankfully I passed. But it was a very stressful time in my life. Thanks. Let's go ahead and wrap up the podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. And we understand if you don't. I love that story every time. Okay, so tell us a little bit. What did you do during the your first year after you graduated? After I finally got my license, I had an associate already lined up in my hometown in a pretty good size, eight to 10 out practice. The office was pretty pimped out. He had three Seric machines. So I got to learn a lot from that. But it just turned out, to put it nicely, it wasn't a great fit. I didn't feel like the turns we had agreed to were being followed, so it ended pretty quickly. You can imagine how I do in those situations, take it in stride for sure. After I left that office, I was going to go do a startup. It was about eight miles away, and I had a 10-mile non-compete. So that doctor basically said he was going to sue me if I opened up there, and I was brand new, and he had a lot of money at the time, and I backed off. So instead of pursuing another associateship, another non-compete, which would have effectively locked me out of the entire area in which I wanted to practice, I decided to take a job at a Medicaid clinic, like an hour and a half away from my house, and began looking to purchase a practice right away. So you're working at this associate practice, kind of a fill-in. When did you purchase your, your first practice? So I graduated in June of 2005, and I think I closed on my first practice around May of 2006. Okay. What was the practice like? First practice, it was in a small town, about 40 minutes outside of St. Louis. It was three ops, fee for service, doing about 600000 in four, four and a half days when I took it over. We had three team members. Over the next three to four years, we doubled that practice while going to three days a week. So we cut out time, we doubled the practice, didn't hire anybody else, still only had three people. Overhead was around 40% with my debt service included. So it wasn't a bad gig. That's impressive. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good success story. Could you share if you had to pick your biggest mistake in that first run of ownership? And I'm sure there were a ton of mistakes. But if I could narrow it down knowing what I know now, which makes it easier, you know, I would think it would be not thinking big enough at the time. I just didn't know how, you know, we were doing very well. I was making good money. Life was good. But I definitely had a glass ceiling. I think looking back, knowing what I know now, we could have expanded and built that into a two to $3 million practice pretty easily. Wow. But you ended up purchasing another practice, right? I did. I was thinking to myself, the genius that I am, I'm thinking, well, 
this dentistry thing's pretty easy. I'm going to go buy another practice, put an associate in there, and print off money, which shows an amazing amount of immaturity in regards to leadership at the time. So, yeah. Well, what was the next practice like? My second practice, it was much closer to the heart of St. Louis in a much more affluent and I use that relative because I'm in St. Louis, but a much more affluent part of town, 80 to 90% PPO based. It was doing about 700,000 a year with three ops and three team members and about a thousand square feet. Okay. So you've got your, your first practice that you originally bought, doubled, things are going well. You decide to buy another practice and put an associate in there, but then Ultimately, you decided to sell your original, your first practice, and then start over in that second practice that you purchased. How did you decide to do that? I say this very humbly, that the decision for me to sell my first practice and move to the second office was, in a way, kind of made for me. My plan, as I just mentioned, print money off, never go to the second practice, did not go as planned. It turns out if you purchase another practice and stick a new graduate in there who lacks the leadership and knowledge and ultimately guidance from me, the owner, to run a practice, it may not do so well. Who knew? So pretty soon after, instead of stopping by that second practice to just pick up my check of 10000 a month or whatever it may be as I had planned it out, I was dropping off those kinds of checks quite regularly to keep bills being paid, keep everybody. You know, I didn't cut hours which I look back, that's one thing I'm proud of. I kept everybody's hours. But bottom line, with the lack of leadership, the practice started to tank. And that was my fault. So that's why I decided to sell my first practice and move to the second one. That was not my in my original plan. And I'll tell you the truth because I can, and it's our podcast, which is kind of cool to say, this whole situation was a pretty hard time. For me, I learned more about myself and running a practice during this time than probably the rest of my career combined altogether. So I look back now and I'm thankful for it. But at the time, it was not fun or easy. Yeah, I've been reading a book by Oprah. It's called The Path Made Clear. In it, she shares a lot of her thoughts. And then she also interviews a lot of different world leaders on life development, stuff like that. One of the chapters, she focuses on pain and struggles and challenges. So she shares her thoughts and then excerpts of those that she's interviewed. There's a general theme among them. And basically what it says is that for significant growth in life to happen, it really doesn't come without pain and struggle. Those moments are and experiences are what allow us to elevate our lives. When I read through that, I was I was kind of surprised by it. I thought this life is is to enjoy; it's not to to struggle and and that. But you know, as I've kind of thought more about it, we become broken down and. When that happens, it's in order to let a new part of us develop and grow. So many of us have a fear of failure, but also maybe even a fear of winning. Justin, do you think you would say that that's true? Yeah, I actually do think that's true, believe it or not. I would say most of us realize to some extent that we don't like failure. So maybe we have kind of an aversion to it, obviously. But I don't think enough of us realize we have an aversion to winning also. And I think it's just as important to realize. What I mean by that is we all have a comfort zone. And that comfort zone acts like a self 
regulating governor on us if we don't consciously break through it. And to give an example, I was talking to a client a few weeks ago, and they made the comment that $5,000 a day was kind of their internal bellwether, if it was a successful day or not. You know how it is? Like, once you hit that number, it just kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. You're like, oh, at least I hit 5000 a day. But when you're below that number, you know, the pressure's still on. Like, crap, you know, we're only scheduled 4700 We got at least hit five. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the thing is, I knew that their daily goal was, I forget, it was like 6500 or 7000 But it was very obvious that their comfort zone was that $5,000 number. That's where they and their team felt comfortable. And as a result, because that pressure was relieved at 5000 they were struggling to hit their actual goal consistently. So, you know, you have to constantly watch out for your comfort zones holding you back. And we all have them. And you have to push into higher levels, sometimes pushing yourself, kicking and screaming, even though it's uncomfortable at times. In regards to my situation of selling my first practice, to me, failure was never once an option. I never was thinking like, oh crap, what if I fail? What if we lose our house? We lose everything. And I had it so good and I opened Pandora's box and now stuff hits the fan and I lost it all. But I never felt like that. Even though that time sucked, even though I knew it was possible that things wouldn't go right, even though I I knew it would probably not be a straight shot, I still planned on winning. You know, it just may take me a while to win. And I'm not ashamed of wanting to win in whatever I do. I'm not ashamed of wanting to be successful. Do I always win on my first attempts? Hardly. But that's kind of how I look at it. Like, I know when I go into something, I want to win. And hopefully I do. But if not, I'm going to keep trying. So to kind of bring this down on a more practical level, you know, I have a lot of clients who get nervous about this is a recurring theme. And it comes down to setting a daily goal for the office and sharing it with the team. Like they don't want the team to know that they want to grow the practice or they want to make more money or they want to have it become more successful. Because if they do, then of course the team's just going to think they're a money hungry jerk, right? So to anyone who's listening to this, you know, don't be afraid of wanting to win. If your team makes you feel bad because you want to make more money, find a new freaking team. Because if you don't, they're going to hold you back. In the area I practiced, I honestly wanted to crush every other dental office around me. You know, had you came to me and said, hey, Justin, I'm a new dentist. I'm thinking about setting up across the street. What do you think about this area? I would probably tell you you're an idiot because you're probably going to get crushed. And I just knew there was just not another dentist around me that was going to outwork me or outperform me, especially when it came to running a dental office. Because if nothing else, I knew I wasn't going to stop or give up. And I'm not saying that to be cocky or to infer I'm better than anyone. I'm not. You know, in fact, I think everyone should feel that way. But I'm glad that most don't. So that's awesome. You talk about this a lot, you know, in the online lectures and other things, just this get after it mentality, like the no apologies perspective. And it's really interesting how, despite all the sacrifice that we go through as dentists, years of school, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, risk and taking on a new business, after all that, 
sometimes people are just afraid to come out and say they want to have success or they're afraid of winning in a way. So tell us a little bit more about the second practice, because this was your, you know, you built this up to something really, really special. What, what were some of the numbers and the processes of the practice number two? I purchased this practice. Like I said, I purchased the first one in 2006. I purchased the second one September of 2009. And in 2009, or it was heading towards or trending towards 2009, it was going to do about 700,000. And in 2010, after my lack of leadership, it did about 400,000 down from 700. I was severely upside down in the practice after one year. So I realized something had to give. And I decided if it's going to go down, it's going to go down with me in there. And I knew by then, and I feel like I really know it now after working with a lot of dentists, that I've yet one time, I'm yet to see a broken practice. But I see broken systems. I see broken customer service. I see broken leadership all the time. So dental practices, for the most part, are if you go in and do the right things, plug in the right leadership and systems, they're usually going to work and often work very well. And if you don't, they won't. So at first, before my sale was completed at the first office, I started working each practice two and a half days a week, which was a lot of fun after you've been, you know, kind of loving life working three days a week. So I let the associate go and I'd work until noon at my first practice on Wednesday. And then I'd drive over 40 minutes and finish the week at my second practice. And that went on for about four months into 2011 when the sale was completed. What was your weekly schedule once you went full-time at the second practice? So after the sale was complete and I didn't have to work at the first one, by that time I kind of felt like I had proven the concept already and I knew I could do the numbers or do decent numbers in three days a week, assuming, big assumption here, that the practice had its ducks in a row, so to speak. So day one, Instead of working four days a week, which they had been when there was an associate there, we went to three days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I would work. Thursday, we stopped seeing patients, cleared the schedule on Thursdays, and we dedicated that exclusively for training the team on how to run the practice. You know, I'd stay up Wednesday night preparing training material and handouts for the three team members, and Thursday morning, we'd go through everything, made them some binders. You know, we went through how to answer phones, what to say to patients, how to co-diagnose, what to say to patients when they saw treatment that needed to be done, how to take good intraoral photos. You know, we basically, like I said, started at the beginning on how to run a practice and went over it and over it and over it again until it became second nature for them as well. And my bet was even though we were losing a day of production each week, which is pretty important when you were struggling at the time, my bet was that that training time was going to kind of lead us to the promised land and allow us to become more efficient and productive in the practice. And that paid off, thankfully. Once the team was trained, it becomes much, much easier to hit our goals in the office and took a big load off my shoulders. But not going to lie. That six months of training was not fun, wasn't fun for me, probably wasn't fun for them. But bottom line is, it's something that most are not willing to do. Yeah, I think this idea of front-loading the process 
is something that you and and Steve and I have all focused on quite a bit in our practices, and it's definitely a big focus in our coaching. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. Have you always been this type of a person? If not, when did you realize that this was so key? I do think I've always kind of been a weirdo like that, but I think I realized it during this time in my life, how important it really was and is. And I feel like it ties back to many other things we discuss regularly, putting in the work when others won't and doing things, even though you don't want to do them. You know, I don't believe in procrastination. If I can get it done today, I'm going to get it done today. You know, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. So use them. And once you get your work done, then you can have fun and relax once that's all done. Okay, so back to your practice. Talk about your procedure mix. 95% of it was bread and butter. I did a little Invisalign, and I did a few implants here and there, slam dunk cases, and that was really it. Nothing special. Pretty much stuff anyone can do after a little bit of training. But you you grew this practice, right? How What was the pace of your of your growth? In 2011 which is, you know, so I started the practice full-time in April of 2011 after I sold my practice. We jumped back up to 700000 that year. That was the end of 2011. By the end of 2014, before we moved to a new office with five ops, so we were still at three ops, I had added a team member, so I had two hygienists going, three ops, um, and we were between 1.2 and $1.3 in adjusted production, which is decent. But I mean, it's not like setting the world on fire, but overhead was still well below 50%. And by that time, I was already starting to take off close to eight weeks a year. How did you do those? Because you still had three chairs, right? Yeah. Hustle and the practice was tight, not to oversimplify it, but we focused on absolutely nailing the 10 to 15 things we do in a dental office over and over and over every day. We set goals. We scheduled to those goals. We nailed the simple things and we just hustled. I mean, I would turn over rooms if we had to. Just everybody was willing to do whatever we needed to do. And just like Bruce Baird would say, our goals were to take really good care of our patients and hit our goals. And that was it. Yeah. So when did you retire from hands-on dentistry? October 2nd, 2017. I just happened to know that date. I know that date. I was 38. So nobody do the math like, how old is he? Yeah, that would be tough to figure out. So what was the practice doing at the time when you sold it? When I sold, we were doing about 2 million gross, five team members. I was still working three days a week and taking 10 to 12 weeks off. Nice. Yes. So if you're taking that much time off, you know, that's like north of 15K a day. And this was a PPO practice, right? What does it look like in a PPO practice to do that every day? Never really thought about it like that, Steve. But again, that was gross. So looking at the schedule, if you could just pull out my schedules right now and go in a time machine and go back then, you know, at first glance, it would probably look very busy. And it was. But our efficiency and the fact that everyone knew their roles and could perform their roles at a high level, it made it very manageable. You know, I was not wearing, I hustled, but I wasn't wearing the roller skates you may think I would need. 
A big thing that we try to do is maximize every single appointment. You know, if you're doing all your dentistry, this goes to any, anyone and everyone who's listening. If you're doing all your dentistry one tooth at a time, as most dentists do, that number for me, for most of us, would likely be impossible, especially on three days a week. So we tried to maximize appointments and we work together as a team. I use this analogy in the online course that we have. If you go to a symphony, which obviously I do weekly, Derek probably does with Oprah. If you go to a symphony and you look at any one individual musician, you know, if you just look like a violin player, you know, they're making violent love to their instrument. But all we hear, you know, either on the radio or looking at the whole thing is just beautiful music created when they all work together. And that's how I always wanted my practice to be. We all worked really hard, but for the patients, I just wanted them to hear the beautiful music. I happen to love symphonies, by the way. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> so when you were 38, you were you were done with this practice. Did you have a goal that you wanted to be done at that time? So I had two goals. 37 was kind of my like outlandish goal, which pushed me that was a big stretch. So it always kept me pushing. 40 was like my secret goal. If I didn't have it accomplished by then, I would have been pretty disappointed in myself. And I know it sounds stupid. I'm sure there's some people that are like, oh my gosh, what a crybaby. He's disappointed at 40. And it was just me. You know, it, that was the goal I set for myself. I'm not saying anyone else in the world has to have that goal. Some of you, you guys may be before then, but 40 was my goal where I'm like, man, if I don't have it done by then, I should. So did you just hate dentistry? Why did you want to be done? I get asked that a lot. Why did I retire? Bottom line for me is life is short. I didn't hate dentistry. In fact, I really liked dentistry, but I hated having to go and be somewhere from nine to five. I wanted to do different things, spend more time with the ones I love, doing the things I want. And that's really what it came down to. So how did you know that you were ready? I mean, like even mentally or financially, especially. Tough question. Let's start with the mental. Mentally, I don't know if you're ever ready, or at least I don't know if I would have ever, quote, been ready. But I also felt a part of me was always ready, if that makes any sense. For example, it's an unknown, right? Like you hope you've planned well, you hope life is going to be amazing, but you don't know. I hoped I could figure out life outside of being a hands-on dentist, but it had been a huge part of my life for a long time. On the flip side, and I don't want to refer to cliche buzzwords, but I was so dang stubborn, bullheaded, whatever, clear on the vision I had for my life. And I probably have mentioned this before in other podcasts or something, but it's a true story. Like, I'm not sure why I gravitated to this one scenario, but I always pictured myself and my family on the beach during the winter when it's freezing in St. Louis. And not just like for a week long trip, but like, this is our life kind of trip. And to me, in my mind, that would mean we'd made it. Like, whatever that means, to me, that's what it was. That was making it in my mind. And that vision would play through my head constantly. And it would motivate me to keep going. I'm talking like mid-procedure, cutting a crown prep. Instead of thinking of margins, I'm thinking of this vision. 
And funny, Macarino actually texted me, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, we are just chatting real quick, and he said, I'm working on my mid-procedure thoughts. And I was like, that's a good terminology, Matt. But that's exactly how I felt. You know, I had these thoughts run through my head whenever I was working, getting tired, whatever. And to me, it was almost like life and death. And I know that sounds extreme, but I think that's where a lot of magic happens. You know, when talking to clients, let's say their daily goal is 6,000, as it was for a doc I talked to today. And he asked, so what do you do when you come in and you only have 5,000 on the books? And we talked about several things, but I pointed out to him, if I came in that morning with you and I had a bomb and I told you and your team during the morning huddle, hey, you guys got 5,000 on the books. If you don't figure out how to produce 6,000, boom, bombs going off at the end of the day. They would figure out how to produce that $6,000 every day. So it can always be figured out. But most of us don't think of our hopes and dreams like that. You know, people want to give it the old college try. And, you know, if we don't hit them, we don't hit them. So be it. But like Eric Thomas says, you know, you have to want it as bad as you want to breathe. And I felt like I did. I'm pretty sure that came from Socrates. Eric Thomas may have stole it. I'm actually surprised you didn't give Oprah credit for it. But Socrates is a good runner up. I think Oprah's cool. I'm still a little a little bit hurt. So uh, I actually tried to buy Oprah a drink in a bar one time in Chicago at midwinter. That's for a different podcast, though. True story. So anyways, going back to my story of kind of financially or mentally ready in my goals. Thankfully, I did hit it in 2018. Um, I sold in October 2017. We spent three weeks in Florida in the winter, that first winter. And then this year, 2019, we spent two and a half months in Naples for the winter. And then a couple months ago, we purchased our own home in Florida. So now we can just go down whenever the heck we want. Just for the record, I don't say any of that to make myself sound good or cool or special or whatever. You know, trust me, I've had more than my fair share of failures, but that was a goal of mine. And thankfully it happened. Sure. And that's kind of, you know, in some fashion, most of our goals, I guess you could say, probably most of our listeners hearing that. So that's, thank you for sharing that. About the financial side of it, how did you know you were ready from that aspect specifically? Was it like a monthly thing? Was it a, you had like everything paid off? How did you know financially? I'm not sure, again, that you ever feel 100% ready, but you do the math and you hope it works out. Early on, I set a few parameters to kind of know or what I thought would be knowing I could financially retire. I'm just going to lay it out there. I knew, you know, this is probably seven, eight years ago that I kind of came up with these. I knew I wanted $20,000 of passive income, mostly from our real estate investments, which I'm sure we'll talk about in future podcasts because I know it's been a big part for each of us. You're talking monthly, right? Yes. Yes. I didn't want to retire. It's like, all right, we got 20000 for the year, kids. What do you want to do? We can go to Aldi's for Christmas. You can all pick out one thing. Anyways, so $20,000 of passive income. I wanted our house paid off, our main house. I wanted a million dollars in investable accounts for an emergency fund. And that was like my bare butt minimum parameters. And, you know, by the time we got there, we had exceeded those. 
by the time I had sold my practice. And, you know, let me say that the sale of my practice was a part of that equation, you know, that could fill in any gaps or pad any holes that needed to be for the income from the sale. But at least for me, I felt like there was at least the possibility once I cleared my bandwidth of running my practice that that extra bandwidth would allow me to be more open to other opportunities that could now come along, you know, whether they be investments or growing TLP or whatever, you know, I'd have more room for things to come into my life. And that was my guess and kind of my hope. And I didn't know if it would happen, but I would say that it has. And my income actually for the past two years, when I expected it to be going down has actually gone up more than since I was practicing. So my goal was to never retire from dentistry, just to retire or just to get by. Like, I think a lot of people, a lot of us could retire early in life if we wanted to cut our expenses and live like a pauper and, you know, just cut everything down to the bare minimum. And that, that's just not me. That was never my goal. That's not living life to the fullest, in my opinion. Our expenses have actually increased, thanks to my wife, because we have more time to do more fun things. We get to travel, hunt a lot in this fall, or, you know, just whatever we want to do. Have you ever regretted it? No, not for one second. Honestly, I literally pinch myself almost on a daily basis. And I, I don't say it's rub it in. It just is what it is. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like, you know, I would be done with the week about five o'clock on Wednesdays and probably about midday Saturday, I would start to be thinking like, oh boy, Monday's coming up. And not even like, you know, I was thankful for my job. If I had to go to a job, that was the job I wanted to go to. But it was still Monday. It was still, I had to get up, get dressed, do my hair, not put on my ball cap and flip-flops, and I had to go to the office. And, you know, I was on stage, as we all are, when I was at the office. And just when I start to get that, like I still, you know, I'm less than two years into it, I think. There will be some times where I catch myself like, oh, it's Saturday afternoon. That means Monday. I'm like, oh, wait. Oh, snap. I can sleep in till noon and watch reruns of Oprah. I'm sorry. I'll quit making Oprah jokes. That's why you were up at 445 this morning, <laughs> yeah. right? I was watching the O channel. Sorry to digress. No, I've never regretted it. So in your opinion, then, for other dentists who have similar aspirations of success, what would you tell them? What do you think is holding them back? Ooh, I like this question because it kind of gets me fired up. One of the greatest abilities I see lacking right now, just in our culture, but we talk to a lot of dentists. So that's kind of my go-to. But like I said, one of the things I see lacking is the ability to see something you really don't want to do and then do it anyway. And I'm a believer that you have got to do hard things. You've got to accomplish hard things. You've got to complete hard things so that you know that when push comes to shove, you can do hard crap. You can't just read about them. You can't just think about them or whatever. Listen to other people talk about them. You've got to go out and actually put the pedal to the metal and do things yourself. You've got to take action because that's where confidence comes from grit, mental toughness, et cetera, that comes from 
proving to yourself like, you know what? I want to get up at 445, but I'm still going to do it. You know what I'm talking about. And I, I believe that those skills are skills to be worked on. I don't think that they're just character traits that you're either born with that or you're not born with it. And I think too many people, if they take action at all, they take it based off their feelings. You know, when they should be taking action based off their own standards. Good example, in my opinion, because it's my example. But did you guys always feel like paying off hundreds of thousands of dollars in school loans in a year? And I know the answer is no, but that was your standard. I didn't always feel like working to the point where I'd be able to retire from dentistry at 38 if I wanted to, but that was my standard. So I did it regardless of how I felt most of the time. And do I have this down in every area of my life? Heck no, but I'm aware of it. And I look for times when my actions are not living up to the standards that I try to hold myself to. And as I look back on my life, those hard times that I persevered through are where I've grown the most. And I gained the most confidence in myself to do bigger and better things. And bottom line, without a doubt, if I didn't have the hard times or setbacks or the resistance I've had in my life, like everyone else does, I would not have grown to the point that I was able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Period. Yeah. Good perspective. So can we talk a little bit about the lifestyle practice? Because we got your practice, you know, kind of your journey in that way, your ability to hit financial freedom at a young age. Tell us a little bit about your creation of the lifestyle practice. So it started in May of 2016 and really TLP, the lifestyle practice, was one of the hardest things for me, going back to what I was just talking about, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life was to get that off the ground. But really since then, like most hard things, it's been one of the most rewarding things in my life also. At the root of it, I felt the reason I created it or started it, I felt like I had or have experienced something special in my life in regards to my dental career. And after seeing what's possible... I wanted to share it and help other doctors do the same because it's pretty dang cool. The lifestyle practice, yeah, we profit from it. But at the end of the day, I can honestly say that was never the basis behind it. I never started with thinking, oh, a great way to make money is a dental coaching company. Like, if you're thinking that, you're an idiot. And bottom line, if you're not providing value to your clients, you're not going to survive very long in this arena. And we're beginning our fourth year and have grown each year. So what was the hardest part about starting it? You know, in the beginning, I had an idea. I had a dream. I felt like I had knowledge to share, but I had no idea how to get it out there to the world or execute on it in any way. I've never done anything like this. I'm not over technologically savvy, probably because I'm really old. There were plenty of times a self-doubt with that voice in your head saying, like, who cares what you have to say? No one's going to listen, whatever. And then just the logistics. Like, I had to get the original Lifestyle Practice Academy, which is our own online course for dentists. It's on a sales pitch here, but just filling you in if you have no idea, which was close to 200 pages, single spaced. I had to get it recorded, slides done, put on a website, figure out a shopping cart, mailing list, you name it. Every single little detail, which I knew nothing about going into it. And for six months straight, my life, and probably even more than six months, my life was as follows. 
go to work, spend time with my family when I can work on TLP. But like I said, the most rewarding things in life are also the hardest, at least in the beginning. So since that time when TLP started, how many dentists have we had come through TLP, do you think? And what has it done for their practices, would you say? I'm not good at getting testimonials. I'm not good at these numbers. If I had to guess, I would say probably 300, give or take. I would say 95% of those, the feedback has been awesome. For 5%, probably, it's just not their style or what have you. And that's okay. That doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Just like this podcast, some will like it and some won't. But I do know there have been some serious life changes. And hopefully from time to time, we'll get to have a few of them on. But just like with you two, who both started off as clients, I don't ever want to take credit or steal anyone's thunder. You know, I think coaching adds fuel and focus to an already motivated, hardworking doctor. But at the end of the day, we don't do the work for our clients. It has to come from inside them. They have to want it. They have to be willing to put in the effort to get the results. Well, I think that's a good time to wrap it up. I think we've covered a lot of really cool ground. Thanks, Justin, for sharing and kind of being vulnerable, sharing some of the weaknesses, some of the strengths and successes. It's a lot of fun to hear about. Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode one. It's just the beginning. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be going through my and Steve's journey as well, and then also jumping into other topics. We'd love to get your feedback, uh, either through reviewing things on iTunes, or you can just email us our first name at thelifestylepractice.com. So, you know, Justin, Derek, or Steve at thelifestylepractice.com. We'd love to hear your ideas and communicate with you that way. We'd also really like you guys to email us if you have any questions or if you have topics or ideas of things that would be helpful for you and your practice, things that we can discuss or kind of teach and mention in, in future episodes. And if you want more information about the lifestyle practice, you can always email us like Steve just said, or check out our website, www.thelifestylepractice.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, see ya. Listen to be great.